Welcome to Manifold. I'm Corey Washington, and I'm here with my co-host Steve Shu, and Joe Cesario is back. Joe's an associate professor of psychology at Michigan State University, and this is our second episode with Joe. Joe is a researcher on police use of force and a broad commentator on research methods in social psychology. He's also broadly critical of both how experiments are conducted in his field and how those results are interpreted and communicated to the public. Thanks for coming back, Joe. I would like to drill down into your view of your own field and what you think is wrong with it, what you think is right about it. Because as far as I understand, you believe that there is bias in policing and that these results have come about through research in social psychology. However, at the same time, you think there are serious methodological flaws in these studies. And I want to hear your views about both those topics. Give us an idea of how a typical social psychology experiment is conducted and what you think might be wrong with both the execution of the experiment and the interpretation. Right. There's a whole lot that would be wrong. <laughs> let, let, let's start with um, a, a particular kind of experimental social psych study, um, which is one on stereotyping and bias. Uh, it's given that that's most relevant to what we've been talking about. Usually the way these things work is that we start by you know observing some disparity in the world, some group disparity in the world that we care a lot about, uh, whatever it may be, gender and STEM participation, uh, racial differences in school suspensions and expulsions, any, any kind of disparity that we see. A as social psychologists, we start with the assumption that stereotypes matter for understanding that disparity or for explaining that disparity, which is just the sort of natural bias of people who study social psychology. And so to get at that, what we do to, to show that stereotype effects matter for those kinds of disparities that we would design an experimental social psychology study, very, very standard, systematically designed study where we create, let's say, resumes of individuals who are exactly alike in every way except for their racial group or, or their sex group. Or in the case of fatal police shootings, we would study that by showing people you know, hundreds of pictures of black males or white males, and they're equally likely to be armed or unarmed. Okay, so, so any of the school suspensions, we give people vignettes to read about a child through an eraser at the teacher, what's the proper response, and the child's black or white. So let's zero in, just yeah. for concrete sake, sure. on, say, the um, shootings. So a typical experiment would have me, or Steve here, sitting in front of a computer. That's right. And... What am I looking at in the screen? You're going you're gonna to get a picture that's going to appear on the screen. That picture is a static image, let's say, with a black or white male holding a gun. Okay, And then in front of you is the keyboard, and one key is labeled shoot, and another is labeled don't shoot, and you've got to hit those keys as quickly as possible. And we might impose some sort of time limit, like you have to respond in 600 milliseconds or something like that. That happens. And you should shoot if you see a gun, but if there's no gun, you should Yeah, the decision shoot. rule is always shoot with a gun, don't shoot without a gun, which of course isn't really the decision rule for police officers, uh, which is a, its own problem. But but the main, the, you're looking for the main piece of information on which the action is contingent, like does he have a gun? Right. But then the question is whether the ethnicity of the person or the race of the person That's right. affects that decision. Yeah. And so you might make 200 judgments like that in rapid succession one after the other. 
Okay. What we're going to find, like almost all stereotyping studies find in experimental psychology, is that you respond differently to the targets depending on their race. In this case, you're more likely to press shoot when the person is unarmed if they're black relative to if they're white. In the school suspension example, you give stronger disciplinary you know, uh, recommendations for a black child relative to a white child, again, for doing the same action. So I think Corey wants to focus on the limitations of extrapolating from that experimental result to the real world. However, I even question whether the, the result uh, is statistically real, because with p-hacking, people might be running the study just long enough that they accumulate a p less than 0.05 mm-hmm. significance effect and then, and then quickly publish the paper. And then when some other group does uh, some very similar experiment, again, just within the lab, they find they don't replicate even the findings of the first study. So how confident are you even in the purely laboratory effect that these people are identifying? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. And, and sort of big picture problems with social psychology is where this comes in. In the case of shooting, uh, in, in the specific case of race and shooting, I'm extremely confident that that's, that that's a robust finding and a replicable finding. We've done dozens of studies. We get the effect every time. It's, it's really hard not to get that effect in, the, in that pure, narrow laboratory Got study. It. Got it. In other domains, it might not be the case. So there are two effects, right? There's, first of all, you're more likely to shoot a black suspect who is unarmed, right? And that's the more robust effect. Yeah. And also you shoot faster if the suspect is black. Is when they're correct? armed, that's they're correct. Armed, that, yes. that is often found also, although that's somewhat contingent on how long you give people to respond to, to do that. But the, the case of being more likely to shoot the unarmed person if they're black is a, is a highly replicable and, effect. And, and just to hark back to the previous episode, when you did this under more realistic circumstances with real police officers and more realistic videos showing real-life situations like a traffic stop— you found that effect went away. Is that right? They, exa- they were yeah. not more likely to shoot a black suspect. That's exactly okay. right. So in this case, it would be a highly replicable, reliable effect that is more or less meaningless, in my opinion, for understanding real-world shootings. So presumably there's some assumption in designing these studies that fails to hold in real life yeah. that uh, you know that prevents you from extrapolating the finding. What do you think is unrealistic about it yeah. uh, that fails to have it, right. have it be so, true? So there's one assumption and one serious methodological problem that, that gets at, at what you're asking. The assumption, and this goes back to the question of bias within the discipline, the assumption is an ideological assumption, which is that what, what underlies it is that all groups are basically the same in their behaviors. Okay, And so the, the justification for presenting... Um, you or Steve in this computer task with an equal number of armed black and white um, targets and an equal number of unarmed black and white targets is the assumption that in the real world, black and white citizens are as likely to be in to be armed in the presence of a police officer. Okay, In the case of the school disciplinary procedure, the, the reason why we describe in the, the justification for it, a black child and a white child is performing exactly the same behavior is the belief that in the real world, black and white school children behave exactly the same. St- gender and STEM, you know, the reason why we would present a resume from a male or a female engineering applicant exactly in the same manner is the belief that actually there are there is equality across the groups. 
So I, I thought another issue here would be, um, you know, this is a different population. Instead of a bunch of undergraduates sitting in a classroom doing this, if you brought trained police officers to run the same in the same experiment, would they also show the effect? Right. So that's now a, a, another problem beyond the kind of ideological assumption issue that we just talked about, that, that's another problem that relates to the general methodological approach. Uh, and, and in most of experimental social psychology, the, the, in fact, the far majority of it, probably over 90%, what you have are naive undergraduates, untrained undergraduates, who you know, I would argue don't even know how to make these decisions. Okay, So if you ask them, what are the rules by which you could use deadly force, they would have no clue whatsoever. Just as if you ask them, how would you just decide whether to make a disciplinary judgment or you know judge one engineering applicant versus another, they have no clue what, what that scope is, is even like. And so it's like a, a, a um, lack of understanding of the expertise literature. I mean, there's a general complaint that convenient sample of undergraduates may not actually reflect what is happening in the situation that you actually care about. And and has there ever been a study where uh, in that still very narrow laboratory yep. setting where it's gun, no gun, black or white, uh, you bring in police officers and has anybody actually just done that experiment? Yeah, we did that. Um, a few other people have done that as well, but we did that and we also then used cognitive modeling to understand how were people making decisions? And so what that allowed us to do was to say, what are the actual processing differences among trained experts versus untrained undergraduates? And, and you see really striking differences in terms of how officers use information when they're making the decision and how they are or are not affected by, by uh, the person's race. But is the effect still there with cops? Just, no, just, no, the effect is not there. Even in the classroom? That's correct. Okay, yeah, even in the you. simplified version, the, the effect is not there. Because what one thing that we see is that officers, trained officers, who, by the way, have to make this decision about what's in a person's hand probably hundreds of times a day relative to an undergrad who has never had to do that, they can locate and process the object that's in the person's hand much, much more quickly than the untrained undergraduate can do it. And they can do it in a way which more or less blocks out the effect of race, race from distinguishing yes. Yes. what's in their hand. Right. So this is sort of fascinating because you're kind of saying there are actually two dimensions to the explanation. First, you're saying there's a base rate issue as far as how often groups are likely to be armed. And you didn't say it, but I assume underlying your comments is that black suspects are more likely to be armed in encountering police than white suspects. And you think that partly drives the actual bias you find in among certain groups. The second is that expertise, even though there is a base rate difference, can actually eliminate that. Uh, you can actually sort of just see what's happening in the video, forget whatever base rate information you had, and operate purely upon your visuals in the simulator if you're an experienced police officer. Right. And it, that's a, that's exactly right. And, and actually, in that second point, even more than that is that, uh, is that in the experimental setups that we have— we aren't including those factors in the real world that in that actually do impact people's judgments. So what we one of the things we do is we strip out all of the complexity of that decision for good reason. We want to try to hone in, for instance, on racial bias in the decision to shoot. But what we've what we do is we take out all of the factors 
that matter for an actual police officer making that decision, okay, which in the real world we've shown have very strong impact on, on an officer's decision. So one thing that we did in these kinds of really stripped down laboratory studies is that we just introduced dispatch information. Okay, So officers have dispatch information. If you look at police shootings overwhelmingly in the real world, they have dispatch information. They're called to a scene for a particular reason. I think we talked about this in the last episode where you know stopping someone randomly on the street is really unlikely to result in a fatal police shooting. Okay, So officers have dispatch information going into the situation. We did a study where we just introduce dispatch information into that standard. So what's in this dispatch information? Just give me an uh, example. Probabilistic uh, weapon information. Oh, give me, give me. Oh, give sure. Me, how the would it the suspect is is armed. Okay. There was a report of a gun. Okay. Is, is actually what it would be because the officer never knows that the suspect is actually armed until they get there. But there's a report of a gun um, or race-based information. A black male has reported having a gun. A white male has reported having a gun and so on. And the race information is always correct. And we manipulate the probabilistic uh, likelihood that the, the likelihood that the weapon information is correct because sometimes it is for officers and sometimes it's not for officers. But what we find is just, just that one piece of information being added back into the experiment totally wipes out the effect of, of race on people's decisions. In this case, even untrained undergraduates. Okay, It just completely eliminates the race bias effect. Um, and what we showed in the simulator is that things like the scenario that the officer is called to, is it nighttime in a dark alley? All of those things have massive effects on the officer's decisions. And what happens is, is that those things really matter in the real world. When we bring people into the lab, we've stripped out all of those strong forces. And what we're left with is this ra racial bias. Okay. So, so I want to emphasize, when you say we've stripped out, you're saying normal other researchers in your field, generally not you, in fact. You tend to put other right. things into your experiments. Yeah. But the standard in the field is to strip everything away. That's right. To run a fully controlled experiment with only a single difference. Right. Right. I guess I still classify myself as a social psychologist since I keep saying we, but yeah, right. That's a, that's right. It's interesting. This is kind of a, a problem, I guess, with our kind of idealized science, right? We often want to run the simplest possible experiment in order to get at the finding. And well, I, I think if you're a sophisticated science, scientist, you can run that experiment and just say there was an effect, statistically significant effect in the setting that we arranged. What you infer from that about the real world is where the, you have to be extremely disciplined about, well, maybe these other factors matter, and then subsequently they're shown to matter, right? Right, so. right. I, I, granted that, I think, I think we kind of run into the issue of scientists and others trying to sell their findings, right? Mm -hmm. Scientists, and we in this office, right, spend a lot of time trying to help our scientists on campus sell their findings. And what we're seeing is there's a huge incentive, in fact, for people to want to sell their findings beyond what the actual, they may actually validly show. Yeah, I think there are kind of two slightly different effects. So one is that if there is a preconceived notion of reality within the researcher, the research community, then obviously you're going to get a lot of results which reinforce that because uh, you'll have a hard time getting something published if it contradicts people's priors. The other issue is just in order to get it into nature as opposed to just a, another good journal, it has to be extremely sexy and have some twist to it. And so you have a lot of people distorting themselves to try to get that twist so they can get into nature. And then consequently, a lot of the papers in nature are actually maybe even more likely to be wrong than in uh, some other kind of roughly equivalent journal because of the sensationalist factor that is required to get it into nature. And, and that's part of the, the bias in general in social psychology or the view in social psychology that we care about these surprising aha findings, right? That's what gets into nature. 
um, showing personality stability and uh, from childhood to adulthood. Once that's been shown once, repeatedly showing the importance of that is not going to get you into nature. Yeah, I, I think right. I often comment on this that in some disciplines like physics, replication of someone else's result or showing that their result is wrong is considered equally as, as important, almost as important as a kind of big aha thing, because people realize how the scientific method actually works. And I'm always surprised in these other fields where they don't seem to understand that, and they won't give people credit for, if I show your result is wrong, that's as important as producing a flashy but wrong result, which actually just confuses everybody in the field for a few years. Right. And you have the, the and that's interesting, you don't even get a publication for replicating, much less credit for it. But, uh, you know, in, in, and even a second tier journal is going to be biased against publishing a straightforward replication. Uh, but it, it, it's worse than that, really, which is that you, you have this t the time order heuristic that I think Gelman talks about, where the thing that comes in first gets priority in people's minds, even if the failure later on is a much better study. Yeah, it's, it's been shown that a lot of the citations are to papers that were subsequently shown to be wrong, but the people citing them still cite them as if they were correct. Yeah. And so there isn't even good equilibration of knowledge within these fields sometimes. It, it, I mean, it's not true entirely. Often over time, things will be the citations of wrong papers begin to uh, go down over Decade. time. Decade. <laughs> it, it, it varies. It's very, very, very quite a loss. I mean, one of the really interesting early cases was the case of um, identifying the AIDS virus where initially the, both an American group and a French group that identified the virus, and I forgot the name of the guy, the American guy who identified it, but he basically used the uh, virus from the French group in his paper. He's later accused of misconduct, but over time, citations of his paper went down and the French group hmm. continued, and eventually the French group won the Nobel Prize over this. But I think there's actually a third dimension to getting results accepted, and this is by the public, right? We don't, we don't just want our, our things accepted by a journal. If we want them to be taken by the public and get some public discussion, and then you've got to make them even more sexier. And not just sexier, but you have to also make that leap from, I did this very controlled lab right. experiment. Oh, and this is how you can use it in your own life, you know, to stick to your diet plan. Right. And, and there's, you know, there's a, a way in which we're talking about this in a, in a really not quite malicious, but something like that manner. But but there is a, a more positive spin to it, which is that the reason why we don't just want to say in this sample of undergraduates in this highly simplified task, they showed X, is because we actually care about the real world. Okay, And, and so there's that element to it as well. We care about real people being shot by the police. We, we do, but we are, I think, insufficiently careful in exactly. extrapolating yes. from the simplified laboratory setting to the actual setting that we care about. I think I should say it was, it was Gallo, the American with the AIDS who virus, who at first claimed to have it. It was Montagnier who eventually, who actually did identify it. So there's one test you're pretty critical of, and that's the implicit association test. This is a test everyone can take. It's up on Harvard's website. It tests implicit bias. I've taken the test. Um, Malcolm Gladwell took the test and said he's pretty disturbed to find out that he was mildly biased against black people and four white people, which disturbed him because he's half Jamaican. And so people made a lot out of this test, and you don't think it shows very much. So can you explain what the test is? I encourage all of our listeners to take it. The results are actually a little bit troubling. I won't tell you what my biases are because <laughs> I find them personally very uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm not biased against black people. I went to the, you know, but like I am biased against other groups. But what is the test, and what's wrong with the common interpretation of it? 
Okay, so the test is basically, um, uh, again, you, you should definitely go online and take it because this is one of those pictures is a thousand worth a thousand It's called words. the IAT. Yeah, the Implicit Association Test. And so it, basically what's going to happen is it's a test in which you're given two different categories. And one thing that's useful about the test is the general, it has a very general structure that can be used essentially for any kind of category and any kind of attribute you can think of. So, so we might say males and females, okay? You're going to have these two categories, males and females, and then you're going to have a secondary category, set of categories, which is the attribute that you're interested in. So you might say science versus art, okay, for males and females, science and arts. You might have um, good and bad for black and white, which is the really common one that, that um, Gladwell took and that many other people have taken. You know, good and bad, Republican and Democrat. And you, you, any kind of categories and attributes you can think of, you can do an IAT with this, okay? So you have these two categories, these two dimensions, and then you are to make decisions about some set of words or pictures that appear on your screen, you're going to categorize it in, in one of these two ways. So a picture of a male might appear on the screen. You've got to push a button to categorize it in terms of male, all right? Or a picture of a female appears, you push a button that says female. The word experiment appears, you're going to push a button that says science, right? And the word pottery appears, you're going to push the button to categorize it as an art, okay? So you're going to do this over and over and over again. The key thing is that sometimes the two dimensions are paired in what you might think of as a stereotypic way, other times in a counter-stereotypic way, is, is one way of, of describing it. Uh, so you might have one set of trials where on one side of the screen, let's say the left side of the screen, male and science are both there, and on the right side of the screen, female and art are both there. Okay? But then there's a different set of trials, a different block of trials, where male and art are paired together and female and science are paired together. Okay? And what happens, the main effect, that, that the IA, what is called the IAT effect, is that it's more difficult to do the task in those counter-stereotypic pairings. Okay? So when the word experiment appears on the screen, or the word microscope or whatever appears on the screen, it's harder for you to call that a science if the word science is next to the word female, okay, relative to when the word science is next to the word male. Okay? And it's harder for you to say dance is an art when the word art is paired with female, or sorry, when the word art is on the same side of the screen as male relative to when it's on female. Okay? So that difficulty that people experience when you compare one set of pairings with the other is the essence of the IAT effect. So, I mean, if you want to just take a very narrow interpretation of this, the whole point is that we do have stereotypes, right? And so we do associate things with other classes of things. And so That's right. just cognitively, it could be a little bit harder to disentangle yourself from that stereotype. It doesn't necessarily mean that you actually have, when it really counts, a bias in the real world. That, that's, ex right? that's exactly so, right. Yeah. That's exactly right. And, and what it is, is a measurement of associations. Right. Okay. That's why it's that, it's that name. And it's implicit because it's very hard to control that. So if you tell people, don't take longer with this pairing than that pairing, it's really difficult for them to do that, okay? So it's a kind of speeded, it's, it, in fact, it's not unlike the Stroop task in the kind of controllability element, okay? It's very hard to do the Stroop task, which is a uh, famous cognitive psychology task, maybe the most replicated finding in, in 
all of psychology, which is a task in which you're given words and you're to name the color that the words are written in. So the word right might be written in the color blue, it might be written in the color red, and you have to name the color. But sometimes those words are color words. So the word blue might be written in red. It's harder to do that than when the word blue is written in blue. Right. And I, I think there are simple numerical tasks too, like if number X is greater than another number, and when they're close together, your brain has to work harder. That's right. So yeah. that you're slower in figuring that out. But right. So, so, on, so it's, on its there's own, some low-level functioning absolutely. difference. Yeah, there's no it, question about that, that. That's correct. And on its own, there's no question that people have associations, people have stereotypes. That's not at issue. What, what's at issue is, in one case, what exactly is it measuring? And the other is, does it matter for real-world disparities? Okay, can we say, the re, because I associate male with science, that helps us explain gender disparities in STEM engagement. So and why, it's that leap. Why do you think that leap's invalid? Uh, a couple of reasons. One is it related to what we've already talked about in terms of the general experiment, my general critique of experimental social psychology is that the, the, the landscape for what matters in an individual deciding to pursue STEM and remaining engaged in STEM and being good at STEM is in no way represented by that task. Okay. So so think about all the factors that go into you deciding, like Steve, you're you know a, a STEM, and, and you also Corey, you're both STEM, you know, strong STEM uh, successes. Think about every piece of you and every piece of the situation that went into you succeeding at STEM. None of that is represented at all in the IAT. Well, here's a question: I I knew a woman who would claim to me that when she wrote her actual name. On her paper, on her exams, let's call her Julie Stein. Uh, she got lower grades than when she wrote Jay Stein. Um, again, so well, I, how strong is her finding? Like, how <laughs> how strong are her statistics? I uh, honestly don't know. Let's suppose. She, let's suppose no, well, we could suppose that's true. Suppose she's right. So suppose that's true. Um, it's not the case, and I want to be clear about this, it's not the case that I'm saying that discrimination or bias or stereotyping effects doesn't exist. It's always going to exist. There are always going to be human beings on the planet who discriminate against others on some kind of surface characteristic. The question is, how much can that explain right. the kinds of disparities the, the, that we see in outcomes? Is, the question is, how much can this simplified That's right. test capture all of that complexity? Right. Maybe you know it would have been fantastic if it turned out through subsequent analysis, that this little tiny computer test actually did capture. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you had a stronger IAT effect in real life, you could show this person really was more sexist or racist, right? Right. That would be a phenomenal finding. But I think what you're going to claim maybe is that further analysis doesn't support that. That's right. And so in, in some of the studies that have actually looked at behavior, okay, at, at real behavior in real situations, you find that the IAT affects a person's individual I, level IAT bias. So Corey, however you much you didn't like whatever group you didn't like, and, and you're not going to reveal here who it was, but however much you might not like this group as indi indexed by the IAT, according to the best data that we have, appears to matter not at all for how you behave toward those actual group members, okay? And, and that's because there's a lot of reasons why, just in terms of the general complexity, um, but one of the reasons is that you have time in most kinds of judgment situations to incorporate a lot more information into your interaction with a person or even into your decision about a person, okay? And what's forgotten about the IAT and other similar kinds of effects is that if you give people long enough, they won't show the effect, okay? Just like in the Stroop task, if you just give people two seconds to name the color instead of forcing them to do it in 500 milliseconds, 
There's no Stroop effect. And same with the IAT. Okay, I can categorize experiment as a science if you just give me a second and a half to do it instead of 600 milliseconds to do it. Now, and then the question is, how often in the real world do you have to make that decision in 600 milliseconds when it comes to you participating in STEM or you judging a student to participate in STEM and, and so on? So if we could encapsulate this as you have an idealized experiment which shows an effect. There is an effect in the idealized experiment, but unclear what it predicts about real-world behavior. Right. Right. But I want to go back to this Julie Stein, J. Stein question. So a friend of mine who we were both on the faculty at Yale at the same time, she's a psychologist now at Cornell, she and I, I believe her husband published a paper in which they did, I think, very realistic studies with resumes and the, 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 the actual details on the resume, the CVs, were the same, and they just switched the names to something obviously from ob- obviously female to obviously male. Uh, these were reviewed by STEM hiring committees, okay? And so actual hiring committees, mm-hmm. I believe, and they ranked the applicants, and then they randomized whether the, the applicant was male or female without changing the actual details of the strength of the CV. And what they found was a two-to-one female preference for hiring females right. by STEM hiring committee over males. So it's a little it's the opposite sign of Julie Stein. Different situation, of course, this wasn't a term paper or something. Now they took incredible heat mm-hmm. for this finding and immediately attacked for this finding. And probably if she had not been a woman, they'd probably been maybe fired from Cornell. I'm kidding, for having this finding. But as an administrator, I actually understand that even if there's no subconscious bias, we are telling all of our hiring committees in STEM to find women. So even if there's no subconscious bias in favor of women, there is an explicit you know, uh, pressure on all these committees to hire women. So um, anyway, that, so the result is not surprising to me at all, but apparently highly controversial in psychology. Right, yeah, yeah. But that's in fact the opposite finding that you occurs in corporate America from exactly the same experiment where you take a female, re- a, a, the same, exactly the same resume, you have a female name or a male name, or you have an African-American name or a classically white name and send this out to a hiring committee at, say, you know, uh, the local investment bank. There you find bias in favor of um, white men. You're, you're, you want, you're chomping at the bit. No, no, no. That's, uh, yeah, yeah, I wanted to let you finish. Yeah. I, I, I mean, those kinds of studies actually have the same problem as the experimental social psychology studies. In fact, they more or less come from experimental social psychology. But in in economics, those kinds of, uh, which there I think they call them audit studies, were criticized almost two decades ago uh, by, uh, I think it was by Heckman, who pointed out that whether there's there's market-wide discrimination against some group is irrelevant for understanding that group's in re- that group's actual employment and actual employment discrimination because employment doesn't happen across the market. Employment happens in some set of marginal companies that actual people interact with and get hired or not hired. So in, in the case of an investment firm, even if you showed, for instance, that, that Goldman Sachs, let's say, showed strong discrimination against black applicants, okay, in this kind of audit study, we sent Goldman Sachs black applications or black resumes and white resumes, and and they showed really strong racial discrimination. His argument was that that's not going to tell you anything about actual racial discrimination in investment banking, let's say, across the market, because the question is, are A, are black applicants 
um, applying to Goldman Sachs. If not, if that transaction isn't occurring in the real world, then it doesn't really matter whether Goldman Sachs is, is engaged in discrimination against hypothetical applicants or not. What if I'm applying to Goldman Sachs? <laughs> Doesn't it suggest that I have a less chance of getting hired by Goldman Sachs than if you were to apply by Goldman Sachs? It would be equivalent That's qualifications? Exactly right. Exactly right. Then the question is, how often is it the case that black and white applicants have have equal um, resumes? Okay, And if it's the case that there are differences in resumes, then whether Goldman Sachs is going to discriminate against you and I when we're hypothetically equally qualified is just irrelevant to the question of general labor market discrimination. So, so that's similar in the case to hold on, but but yeah. but I'm a but but we're applying right, and you're going to get in. I'm not, and you're going to make a lot of money, and I'm not. So how does it? Maybe maybe the maybe there's like not maybe you can't generalize this funding terribly far, but it does seem to suggest that a well qualified black applicant coming out of say Amherst College, mm-hmm. right, may have trouble getting into Goldman Sachs. Uh, compared to white applicant coming out of Amherst College. That's right. That's exactly. There's no question about that. And again, I'm not. I'm not denying that. And we can. We can agree that Goldman Sachs is in fact discriminating. We, 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 we don't yeah, yeah. know. Let's this say, is all hypothetical. We know nothing about Goldman. Right, you know, right. I'm a McKinsey alum. I see no evidence McKinsey discriminates. Apparently, McKinsey and Goldman compete for the same people. So yeah. perhaps there's in a, no in a totally hypothetical world. Exactly. We could. We could agree actually that Goldman Sachs is engaged in discrimination against black applicants. I'm not, that's not at issue. And so if you and I have the same resume, we're both coming out of the same colleges and we're both applying to Goldman Sachs, I agree with you then that that's a problem for you that you're not going to get the job or that I'm more likely to get the job than you are. My point is that that doesn't tell us anything about population-wide disparities in employment for black and white applicants. Because if you're the only black applicant who has the quality resume that you have, then whether Goldman Sachs is discriminating against other black applicants is essentially irrelevant because you're the one who's qualified. And if that's not a, a widespread market phenomenon in terms of equally qualified applicants, then it's not going to do anything to explain those disparities. And, and so again, this gets back to the assumption that underlies those kinds of audit studies, as well as experimental social psychology, that absent discrimination, all groups would look exactly the same in their outcomes because all groups are exactly the same in all of the qualifying personality and other characteristics that go into obtaining some outcome. You were going to say, Steve? I, I, I was actually, I thought you were making a different point, Joe. I thought you were saying that because the CVs are seldom identical, it's similar to the situation with the shooting experiments in the labs. There's a lot of side information, and the you know forcing them to focus on race maybe doesn't extrapolate to the real world world situation where there are richer differences between that's right. candidates. Yeah, I, yeah. I thought that's what you were. That's the that's point. also part of okay. it, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know if you said this explicitly, but you're basically accusing your own field of left wing political bias. And I actually want to get clarification. First, are you accusing them of, of that kind of bias? And is that bias explicit? Or in fact, are these implicit bias researchers exhibiting implicit bias in their conduct of their research into implicit bias? Sure. Let's start with an anecdote. I had a senior, a senior, one of the most well-known stereotyping researchers. I won't, I won't say his name. He came and gave a talk here that I had invited him to, to give a talk a number of years ago. It's a very senior person works in one of the top research institutions in the country, studies stereotyping and prejudice. With with no hesitation when we were talking about these kinds of issues, he said that he would not take a conservative uh, student into his lab. Okay? 
and, and showed no sign at all that that was a problem to him. He said, look, I'm just going on. I, I mean, the idea that he said this in, it, without any kind of self-awareness was incredible. He said, I'm just going on likelihoods, okay? You know, the, 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 honestly, he said, the, the likelihood that somebody who is conservative is going to come into my lab and not get along with the rich, diverse people that are in my lab is higher than if they're a liberal student. So I simply would not take a conservative student if I knew that they were conservative. Wow. Yeah, I, that's an incredible thing that somebody would, would admit in public to say, to, yeah. And you think that this is, as the, the experiments you've been talking about, you think this is not just a singular data no, point? No, I, I mean, if you look at the data, the data are, are utterly clear that there is just massive ideological lopsidedness in all of the social sciences, but especially in social there, psychology. There are, I think there are well-known surveys taken at sort of mm-hmm. you know, national meeting of social psychologists, and they just ask, is anybody here not... You know, far left of center, and yeah. the, the, you know, it's like one percent or so, you know, one person. Oh yeah, well, room, John, Jonathan you know. Haidt did this at one of yeah. our major social personality yes. conferences, where there was something like five hundred people in the room, and when he asked who was conservative to raise their hand, I, I think three or four people raised their hand, right. which is just an incredible lopsidedness. Right. Is there a response bias here that people are just not afraid, people are afraid to raise their hand? No, they can have well, anonymous they, surveys too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, Okay. No, I I, I, I don't think it's disputed by anybody that many of these disciplines are overwhelmingly right. uh, on one side right. ideologically. And, and, and then the question and, is, does it matter? And and I yeah. think there's not a single department. Like if you went to the mechanical engineering department, you might find some Republicans, but there's not a single department on campus that is overwhelmingly on the right. There, uh, I think economics departments may be majority conservative in no, some schools. No, I I I. I Maybe at some schools like George Mason or something, they're libertarians or something. But generally, you'll still find more people left of center than right of center. I, I think that's definitely true most schools. I think there was a, few, a, a book a few years ago on bias in academia, and they tend to find that the bias existed primarily in the social sciences and humanities. That's right. It yeah. was not so much in engineering right. and no, not I, in medicine, I, no, I disagree. I di- I, no, I disagree. I mean, the professoriate in general has shifted left. So even if you look at some field which you think is like, okay, this has nothing to do with ideology, we're just studying quarks. You'll still find more people left of center than right of center because the professoriate academia is shifting. No, I, that, it may be shifting, but as far as I recall, they, they haven't suggested that it was pretty evenly split in medicine. At least was, this was as of ten years ago, right? In medicine, it was pretty evenly split, and engineering it was fairly evenly split. It, it's definitely. That, I, I definitely will grant you it's closer to being balanced, but I, I still think it's shifted to the left. But. No, I was going to say the, the the question then, the second part of what you asked is whether that really matters at all uh, for the practice of psychology or any of the social sciences. And I, 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 to me, it's indisputable that it does, but I would just point to stereotyping research as a great example of this, where it took at least a, a half of a century before anybody thought to ask whether stereotypes were accurate. Okay, And for decades and decades and decades, researchers in social psychology simply assumed that stereotypes were inaccurate. Sometimes actually by definition, they would by definition say that they were inaccurate beliefs about different social groups. And Lee Jussum, who's the main person who does stereotype accuracy research, has uh, story after story of him trying to get this work published and just the incredible difficulty of doing that, even though as he claims, and I I like this phrase, I, I use it in my classes a lot, Stereotype accuracy is the largest and most replicable finding in all of social psychology, which is an incredible thing that it took us that long to, to even ask to even ask the question, much less to find out the answer to it. You, you're in social psychology, and 
there's another field, criminology, which studies something very, very similar to you, if not identical. Well, there, there's definitely overlap. Yeah, at least I'm talking about his particular topic. Uh, his right? topic, right. yes. Yeah. Um, do you find the kind of biases uh, that you describe in social psychology, do you find those in criminology or not? My, my sense, and uh, sort of field-wide, I have much less experience with criminology or criminal justice, but my sense is that um, is that, that bias is not quite as strong in criminal justice. So if you look at the work on police shootings, um, decades and decades ago, they were asking questions about to what degree does uh, neighborhood crime level predict somebody being shot by the police. Now, admittedly, the, the data weren't as good decades ago as they are now for us to ask that question, but that question never comes up in experimental social psychology studies of police shootings. So, so I do think there's a, a just disciplinary differences in terms of a greater appreciation for the role that lots of variables play in something like police shooting, whereas in social psychology, it is about demographic characteristics only. I, I, you know, moving away from research a little bit to teaching, I don't think that it's controversial that most conservative students, when they go to college, so imagine you just happen to be a Republican uh, and you go to college and you go into your social, your required social science course, um, many of them have the feeling that they're being preached at. The professor probably thinks that they're conveying accurate, fair, right. scientific results of social impact, import, to this group of students. But I think most of the students that are on the right would say that, no, they're trying to actually change my way of viewing the world, calling it science. Uh, and it's clearly unbalanced in the sense that they will go through their entire undergraduate career without meeting a social science professor who actually has the same social views as they do. And I think that's a common story among oh. people who are right of center. Yeah. And I could tell you, I, I teach a class on stereotyping prejudice and discrimination, and I, I try to have a very wide range of views represented in that class. One of the, the authors that we read a, a fair amount about because the class has a lot to do with group disparities is Thomas Sowell. Right. And I, the first time I taught that class, I had a student come up to me, and this was the spring semester of this student's fourth year at college. And he, at the end of the semester, he came up to me and said, I just want to thank you. This is the first class I've ever had in any social science class where a view that was not on the far left was presented. And that, that's an, that's, he went through three and a half years yeah. without ever getting any kind of viewpoint other and I'm, than I'm not that making, one. And I'm not making a normative statement or even a scientific statement about which side is right or wrong in these That's issues, right. yeah, yeah. but it is true that half our population is passing through the schools and the, their, their view of what they're being told by their professors is that it's highly alien to what they and their families believe. That's right. And so it's, I don't think it's healthy for our institutions in general for that to be the case. And the other half are passing through our institutions, never getting a conflicting viewpoint. Exactly. Right. Never being challenged. That's right. Yeah. I think this is actually the, one of the best arguments from my former field, which is philosophy. You know, when I used to teach philosophy, I taught it more or less as kind of a social issues class. And then you make a very explicit point of presenting, you know, the pro-life position and argue for it strenuously. And I made a point of trying to make sure that people actually couldn't tell what my ideological perspective but was. But now they would pick at your class for that, don't you think? I'm not sure. I think philosophy is sort of perhaps abstract enough. Um, if, it were, was, if it were philosophy one and there were not a lot of majors— <laughs> They're taking it as a distribution. Don't you think you get very strong pushback for teaching, for example, you know that uh, you know that human rights begin at conception and things like that? You know, I honestly don't know. I've been in a class, a philosophy classroom, in you know, almost twenty years now. But what I can say is there was pushback from my giving the pro-life argument from 
pro-choice students, right? I didn't get that from the other side. Again, just to mm. clarify, none of us are necessarily pro-life. We're just talking about the argument given by right. pro-life people right. not being something acceptable in academia at this point. I, I, that's my impression. You know, it, it, I, I honestly, I, I can't say. I, I have to say, when I give the argument, I still give these arguments to people today, right? And I can find arguments that people will find compelling until they find out they're pro-life, and I can actually push people in that direction. You can actually, I, we get people. I, I'm asking but, whether you would be, whether the students, would, so, so somebody would stand up in your class and say, so, "Hey, you're making me feel unsafe because well, you're giving me." Well, I'm arguments. not sure you or I know this, right? You and I are in office were. We actually don't encounter undergraduates. No, very I, often. No, I'm just asking whether you. It, my impression is that that could happen. Yeah, I, I actually don't think so. I think in philosophy there may be a bias in philosophy, but I think it's sort of understood just as part of philosophy education. You do look at things from different perspectives. Whether people take these seriously or not is another matter. My, my um, impression actually is that it's highly dependent on the university. Yes. So I think correct. if you did it, at, if you did that at Yale, you were going to correct. be picketed. I, yeah. If you did that at MSU, Low I don't believe here. you would. Yes. Yeah. Less chance. I, it's here. different. Different approach. Yeah. yeah. So. But I also want to emphasize, I think this may just be a kind of problem for the humanities and the social sciences. You know, you go through natural science class, you go through physics classes, you go through math classes. Like, there was never a political issue raised in any context at right, all. because it's not really that relevant to the material. That's right. Right, that's right. so, yes. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, and it's, it's interesting, it's actually not so clearly relevant to the material of psychology in general, although psychology has kind of shifted in this direction over time. But if, you, if you're still- Social psychology. Yeah, if you're if you're studying sort of basic cognitive psychology, perhaps uh, you know processing, looking at visual, visual processing, looking at you know language, et cetera, et cetera. It's not clear this is going to come up. Although linguistics, in my experience, was very, very, mm-hmm. very left wing oriented. Yeah, but even in other areas where it could possibly come up, those those sub areas in psychology have there's a number of them that have somehow sidestepped those issues. And, and have very good replicable findings that, that could have political implications, but I think have other features that prevent that kind of skew from happening. So personnel selection, for example, is, is, an, is an example of that. Personnel selection is great research that's done in I.O., really replicable research. So we know a lot about that. Be a little more concrete about sure. that. Sure. What, what kinds of per- personalities, let's say, would perform better at different kinds of jobs? Okay, you're on, you want to know, you want some battery of tests that you could give someone to find out where you you should place them, let's say, in the army, for example, which is one of the origins uh, of this research. That would be an example. Cognitive ability measurement is a is a highly replicable uh, field where, uh, and that has its own problems, uh, as we we know well. But but that's preceded where we have some great data on a on a topic like that. So there are some field sub areas in psychology. Mostly, person, personality assessment, for example, is another one where they have really good understanding of measurement, and they do very careful measurement. Where I think they're doing highly replicable work. Yeah, I think the field of psychometrics That's among right. yeah. the social sciences is on the strongest, I would say, empirical footing in terms of you know their models work, they predict right. reality, they're used broadly right. uh, in, in the military to mm-hmm. you know college admissions, etc. I want to get back to these. The, the, these more uh, controversial issues that are covered. And I want to give the sort of typical left-of-center professor's defense of it, which is they would just say, look, we got all the science on our side. And sure, some Republican kid comes in from the sticks, and I got to educate this kid. I got to tell him that a lot of stuff that he's learning from his parents and his church and uh, his elders and his the political party his dad belongs to are just wrong. I just got to tell him that. I'm the I, I, we're that's our business at the university. We're dealing in truth, 
and I'm here to educate that kid. And I believe that's the general attitude that most of these professors have, right or wrong. Do you, do you agree with that? I, I completely agree that that's a general attitude. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if some kid comes in my class and says, I, I don't believe in uh, quarks, well, I'm going to say, okay, it's my job to explain to you why we you know, uh, believe in quarks and why we can produce them at accelerators and we know all their properties and they've been precisely measured. And I think I'm fully justified in, you know, if, if the kid just won't shut up about not believing in quarks, eventually I have to say, <laughs> hey, uh, let the other kids learn. We, I can't take any more of your interrupting my lecture. I right. know you don't believe in quarks or evolution or whatever it is. But on these very socially relevant, controversial issues, I believe we've reached this point where the professoriate thinks it has the right the scientifically correct view, and they're okay jamming it down the throats of half their students who really don't believe in what they're saying. And right. That's my view of the situation. I, I think that's accurate, and I think the difference between the quark example and the social psychology example is that it, what the social psychology professors don't realize is that their base of knowledge is just completely missing, okay? That, that it's missing other kinds of information that, that actually undermine a lot of what they believe to be true about the world. And the general practice of social psychology, which, which we've sort of hinted at, has a, a lot of problems in terms of being able to then claim that they have some true information. So in, in a standard social psychology study, you could open up any social psychology journal and find examples of this. We think that this variable matters for some kind of outcome. So we measured it. We threw it into a model, a statistical model, and there's a statistically significant coefficient, okay, um, where x is greater than y, p less than 0.05. Okay, they're going to take that as truth, that that thing matters, and that they've uncovered something real. I independent of all the other p-hacking and publication problems and everything else that undermine actual claims to truth, is that at, at no point do they say, Oh, and by the way, this variable explains one half of 1% of variance in people's responses. And is that really meaningful in any way for actual human behavior? It just isn't done. So, so I, I wanted to um, mention that there, there is a movement, I believe, among younger social scientists to basically improve the replicability and the, 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 the strength of the scientific method as practice in their fields. Right. Now, I know that in very strong ways, like pre-registration of experimental designs, um, things meant to prevent p-hacking, so statistical modifications or methodological modifications, there's, I think, a lot of uh, maybe support in the community for fixing these issues. But for this issue of ideological bias, which is a kind of separate thing, how much support is there for that issue uh, among these people? So the people who are the most sort of progressive in terms of improving the scientific method, do they also understand the ideological issue as as of concern, or is that just a completely different thing for them? It's a completely different thing, but my um, anecdotal experiences anyway, or, or non-formal measurement of this, is that there's, there's some fair degree of overlap there, where the people who are concerned about scientific practice issues do recognize that, that ideological lopsidedness is a problem as well for us getting to a, a better place in social psychology. My, my sense is those aren't totally distinct populations. Do we have affirmative action then coming for Republicans in social science? Like Joe, for example, if you had opportunity to willfully encourage as many conservatives to join your lab as possible just for, I'm not, I'm not really joking, for ideological balance and provide a kind of counterbalance to any potential left-wing bias, would you do that? No, I'm more interested in 
uh, early intervention programs. Okay, and if we had early intervention programs for conservative students, I think that would be a, actually an interesting program to pursue in terms of at, at the hiring stage. I'm generally speaking against affirmative action hiring, and so I think I would like to believe that I would apply that equally across uh, across different kinds of groups and, and say that I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, you know. Uh, uh, engage in that in, in hiring practices. But if we had some program to encourage conservatives to actually remain in academia uh, at the early stage and at the undergraduate level or something, I'm not, I'm not sure I would be 100% against that, just as I'm not against other kinds of programs that do those er early intervention. You know, to some extent, Steve, I think that social psychology has suffered from political bias, probably because its evidential basis is weak, right? But you find in a lot of other fields that aren't so where the experiments aren't perhaps as straightforward as physics. Um, bias of any sort can really distort the field. We saw, I saw this in linguistics, right? You have these factions in linguistics. I was thinking as you were discussing having you know a conservative come, kid come into a social science class and a disbeliever in quarks come into a physics class. If you had someone who believed in say lexical functional grammar, right, or theory of linguistics did not involve movement and an underlying syntax into a Chomskyan class, you get almost exactly the same response. People maybe discuss it with them for a little bit, then probably get extremely angry, <laughs> <laughs> and then so they shut the person out. I mean, those really a kind of well, there is a kind of complete ideological homogeneity into these linguistic subcamps. Because it's you can't actually run a straightforward experiment that's sort of non-ideological. I mean, Quine had an idea long ago, which sort of which suggested fundamentally that the the data undetermine the theory pretty radically in these fields. And I think to some extent you may find that in other fields. When that happens, you find ideological bias coming in because it's going to shape what theory you're going to build upon this this data that you build. You could easily build another theory on. Now the question is, is with this in social science. Is, is are the data that really compelling to force a certain theoretical choice? And so I'm asking, do you often find that data can be interpreted in multiple ways and biases coming in and how it's being interpreted? And is it possible to find data that's just so solid that you can't uh, have another interpretation? You clearly have that in your very specific case of your simulators. To take a very specific example, I know Lee Jasim's work about stereotypes that actually quite often some stereotype is derived by people cognitively and does actually represent statistical trends in a population group. And right. I think he has quite strong data about some of those stereotypes actually being accurate. Who in your field believes him? <laughs> does anybody believe him? Or, you know, if you, if you just go to the, go to the school down the road, Michigan, and you just take a poll of the faculty in the psychology department there who should who who are in some adjacent area to his work, how many of them believe his results? Yeah, my guess is that he's still slow in in winning converts into onto his position, even though again he would he would argue that he's got the strongest data probably of anyone. And you can look to his other similar work on the self-fulfilling prophecy, okay, and teacher expectations uh, for student outcomes, where there also he showed that if there's any kind of self-fulfilling prophecy, it's extremely small, okay, an extremely small effect. Go open up your standard social psychology textbook, and it still discusses and teaches the self-fulfilling prophecy as a major force on students' outcomes. So, I think it's very, very slow, even when in the case, Steve, where you bring up, where you have really great data, it's a very, very slow process. Corey, your question about, you know, are the data, is it the case also, though, that the data are weak, that interpretation can come in, interpretive bias can come in? That's absolutely the case. And so um, 
in the case of, for instance, you have a stereotyping effect, that stereotyping effect or that categorical effect might explain a minute amount of people's actual responses, okay? Less than 1% of people's responses. The interpretive bias comes in in not paying attention to that fact, which has direct importance for understanding real-world behavior. It comes in, for instance, the data are abundantly clear that when you provide people with what's called individuating data, so just data about you as an actual person, that, that categorical effects and stereotyping effects get completely wiped out. Okay? If I know something about you, the categorical influence is virtually zero. Okay? Well, researchers don't pay attention to that, so we craft our studies in ways where you don't get any of that information so we can show that there's so a stereotyping So let's be more specific. Effect. You're saying if yeah. you know it's me, then the fact that I'm black or I'm male, I'm from... Massachusetts, whatever sort of thing you're studying, that fades away. That's right. That's right. If I have some, that's right. If I have details about you and your individual behavior, the likelihood of some category that some category that you belong to impacting my judgment is very, very low. Okay, I mean, we know that, but but that information then the bias comes in of not providing that kind of information. Okay, and not interpreting the size of stereotyping effects in light of that kind of information. I, I think the statement that uh, in Fields where the data underdetermine the theory, so empirically weak areas, whether it's string theory or social psychology or whatever, that progress is hard and mm -hmm. ideology can easily dominate. I think everybody agrees with that. What is more troubling to me is in the few cases where we actually have overwhelmingly strong, rigorous data that's replicable and, and still people refuse to update their priors based on that information, that to me is extremely difficult to deal with. However, even in physics, when quantum mechanics was first invented, that's where this first quip came from, that the field is going to advance one funeral at a time. Because these old phys classical physicists could not accept quantum mechanics, and the field advanced just basically as those guys died, they were replaced by pe people who had learned it when they were younger and fully understood it and, and accepted it. But So maybe that's what we're in for. Do you ever get demoralized about the state of affairs? Oh, yeah, all the time. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I, 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 there's a lot of demoralization, particularly when you're trying to publish work that does go against people's priors and, and you, you just see the evaluation of that work be, be highly skewed. Um, but, but there is some optimism, and I think the optimism is uh, not to wish for people's deaths, but that the optimism is in younger <laughs> scientists. Yeah. Uh, and again, this goes back also to the broader issues of reform in scientific practice, is that it, the young people coming into the field are much more amenable than, than the senior people. Uh, even on these ideological issues? I think so, yeah. You know, one one of the things that I feel is that science or the academy, it's a very monastic life. Like you're basically taking a monastic vow to sacrifice all kinds of things to really push for the tr search for truth. But, you know, the, the search for truth is a collective effort. So the, the other people in your field, the other scholars, have to be at least somewhat receptive to arguments and evidence. And if they're not, then it's very easy to say, like, why am I taking this monastic vow when these people are not even engaging with my results in honest, in good faith. And I, I can just easily see people getting disillusioned by that. I, I, don't, I, I think it takes incredible courage to fight an entire discipline that has some entrenched ideology that is in opposition to your findings. Yeah, well, it, it took Lee uh, how many decades before he could start getting this published and, and have any sort of a, a acceptance and appreciation of his work. It's fascinating that Wilson actually found himself probably in a pretty similar situation back in the 70s. 
and he went around the standard journal, uh, the, basically the kind of journal infrastructure to the public with these funds. He wrote right. books, right, mm. and that caused a debate that be- then penetrated back into the field. Yeah, he would mm. be an interesting guy for us to interview, even though he's pretty old now, because he he actually lived through this entire thing and won out, right, and yeah. so now his views, which were you know made him a pariah, people were like pouring water over him or throwing pies at him at his seminars to it being basically more or less accepted, right? A lot of a lot of things that he said in yeah. sociobiology. So, right. yeah. Well, Joe, look, uh, as always, it's uh, been a lot of fun to talk to you. All right. Thanks for having me. <laughs>